And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. O Father, O Ancient of Days, we come to worship you this day. All praise we would render. Help us to see. It's only the splendor of light that hides you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I chose that hymn particularly for today. Um, if, if you still have that, look at verse 2, the first half of it. It is actually just amazing. Uh, these are not inspired words, but they're great words. Right? Speaking of God's work that's unresting, but not hurried. It's not hasting. It's not hasty. Silent as light. It is neither wanting. It's not missing something nor wasting. There is, there is no uh, extra action that God takes that is not necessary. As He rules in might, His, his actions, His work are all perfect. Uh, even if we don't see them uh, explicitly, as it were, uh, in, in what we would think is majestic and miraculous things, that they are perfect. So uh, that, that verse, that second verse, really fell fresh on me as I was preparing for, uh, to speak with you today. And I hope that that, uh, that is, uh, just imparts a blessing to you as well. So... With that, <clears throat> we are uh, back to Esther. A quick review of where we've been, what we've seen. Um, in the first two chapters of Esther, uh, we see both Esther and Mordecai doing a fine job of being undercover, <laughs> blending in very well with society with Persian society. Uh, Esther becomes the, the new queen of Persia. That's how well she blended in, that, that she was just part of the, the process of, of uh, becoming the new queen. Uh, Mordecai discovers a plot against the king, which is uh, after the, the matter is adjudicated, which sounds like it was pretty rapid. Um, <clears throat> silent as light. <laughs> um, it was <laughs> duly recorded and then promptly forgotten, Mordecai's uh, act of faithfulness to the kingdom. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, actually let's uh, look at chapter 3, verse 13. We, we see Haman's plot. Chapter 3, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. That pretty much says uh, what, what uh, Haman's uh, plan was because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Um, through 
uh, chapters 3 and 4, we also see, though, this transformation in Mordecai first, where he essentially lays down the challenge to Esther. says, you, you think you're safe in the palace? You're not. And then he says, deliverance may not come right here and right now, but it will come. So if you choose not to act, it's really just going to be your death and the death of your family. Uh, he doesn't say God, but he says that deliverance will still come uh, to the Jews. And it seems as a result of that, there's this transformation in Esther, who then uh, rises up and says, uh, call all the Jews in Susa together. Have them fast for three days. I and the, my women here, my young women, are going to do the same thing. And then I'll go to the king on behalf of, of all of us. And if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. Chapters 5 and 6, then we see uh, Esther uh, go to the king uh, in a in an amazingly subtle and shrewd way. Uh, she, she doesn't just go and say, there's this, there's this thing and you need to change it. Uh, she invites him to a banquet, and Haman uh, to a banquet. And, and then after the, the first banquet, uh, when the king asks, what, what is it? What, what, what can I do for you? Uh, she says, well, if it pleases the king to do as I wish, come, come tomorrow and I will tell you. Uh, and we experience in chapter 6, verse 1, the, the hinge point of this entire book, which is a sleepless night for the king. Uh, after, after that, uh, what looks like the most bleak situation for the Jews begins to change with an increasing pace. Uh, it, be, it begins uh, early in chapter 6 when, uh, because of this sleepless night, uh, this good deed of Mordecai's is found in a book. And uh, the king, in, a, in a, just a, a, maybe the greatest irony of, of all the scriptures, um, is ready to honor Mordecai and brings Haman in, right? We had, we had great fun at Haman's expense right here last week. You can go listen to that. But Haman uh, is, is ready to receive the king's honor and finds out it's really his job to go and, and actually honor his, his blood enemy. Uh, and Mordecai is led through the streets of Susa in royal robes on the royal steed. Um, and we see... And this is just the beginning of what, what continues to be a growing number of reversals and sort of wins for the Jewish people. And we'll see more of that. Um, that is where we have gotten to. But, but even so, at the end of chapter 6, Esther still hasn't asked her question. Right? She, uh, we still haven't had the second banquet uh, and uh, and we're waiting to see what will happen. So, turn with me if you haven't already, please, to Esther. We're going to start in chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 14. Get a run-up into chapter 7. While they were yet talking with him, that is, 
uh, Haman's wise men and his wife Zeresh. While they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So we have, uh, we have here, again, the, the, you will see this, the pace of the rest of this just continues to, to go quickly, that things are hurrying along. Um, and uh, what has happened now is that Esther, uh, through this process, has now uh, gotten the king to ask her, almost beg her, for now the third time, tell me, what is it? I will do this, please, right? Please tell me what it is that you want. I will do this. He's, and uh, it's, it's an amazing bit of shrewdness on Esther's part. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there are some small but interesting differences if we look at these, these three times. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 3, this is, this is the first time. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Then verse 6 in chapter 5, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then here, Again, in verse 2, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And his, his responses are growing in, in complexity and, and in depth. And he's, he's, he is hungry to hear this very request that he doesn't even know what it is, but he, he's ready to fulfill it. And it's an amazing thing to see this, this happen. Um, she has so shaped the conversation. I mean, we, we know people like this, right? <clears throat> she has so shaped this conversation that she has convinced him that she is doing him a favor by asking him to do something that only a king can do. Um, she, she ought to be a sales... She is a salesman, but she ought to be... Uh, yeah, right? Because she has convinced him that she's the one doing him a favor by... Uh, asking for the favor. Okay. So what we see, uh, let's let's read on in verses three and four, because now we get there. Then Queen Esther answered, "If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request." For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And we'll stop there <clears throat> for now. And so, um, again, it's it's really masterful what Esther is doing. She is... She is like a funnel speaking with more and more clarity and precision as she goes along. 
She starts with just saying, save my life and the life of my people without actually naming who they are. Um, King, you, you hold my life in your hands. Save me. We'll come back to that later. But <clears throat> and then she essentially repeats the center of that edict that we read earlier from chapter 3, verse 13. Right? We've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. This will ring a bell, <clears throat> excuse me, in the uh, um, mind of the Hazards. He now he now knows uh, what what people she's talking about. Um, and then, if that were not uh, if that were not enough, she half apologizes for even bringing this up and saying, "Well, listen, if." If we had only been sold as slaves instead of to be annihilated, I, I wouldn't even bring this up to you because, you know, a, a man needs to have his slave labor force, right? You can't run a kingdom by yourself. So even if we had just been sold as slaves, I, I wouldn't even bother you with this. But, but king, they're going to kill us. Um, so she is, she is, um, Laying this out very more and more clearly with each statement that she makes. Let's go on in verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> then a king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Rightly so, right? Notice that she didn't even name Haman until he asked for it, right? Again, just it's, it's masterful what, what she is doing at a human level in conversation. She's, she's just laying out the facts of what has happened or what will happen and drawing this out. She's drawn the king right into this passion, this passionate conversation. Um, and Haman is sitting right there, right? So the, Haman, Haman is not going to have any opportunity to uh, have some sort of uh, separate conversation with the king apart from, from Esther. It's, it's all going to be hammered out right here, right now. Uh, I am no Hebrew guy, but every commentary that I read uh, says that these, these um, strong words here just sound like machine gun fire. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther's response as well is just staccato, rap, rap, rap. That 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 even even the words chosen here are to impart the strength of this part of this conversation. You'll just you'll just have to take my word for that, or Jason's because he's a Hebrew stud down there. So, um, and uh, it also should remind us as well of the prophet Nathan with David. Yeah. Right, right. Nathan comes in and tells this story of this rich man who has herds and flocks, and then this poor man who has one lamb that you know sits on his lap and eats from his table and is like a pet. Right, and the rich man, right, has guests coming in from town, out of town, and and wants to put on a feast. So instead of going to his herds and flocks, goes and gets this one lamb. Takes the only. The only thing this poor man really has, her comfort or, 
or company, slaughters it and entertains his own guests. And just in David, you, you know, you could just you could imagine in David just the the color rising up his neck, and and it's like, tell me who that man is. You know, uh, where where is he? And uh, you know Nathan's answer, right? You're the man. And uh, I can imagine Esther very much saying the same thing. Right there, Haman, that wicked Haman. That's the man. Yeah. All right. Um, just a little reflection on Esther's process from a bigger uh, point. Uh, just stepping back. And I'll, and I'll point out, you know, this is neither admonished in the text or admired, but it, but it is there for us to, to see and to learn. Learn from, at least. Um, she spent three days fasting as soon before she did anything, right? Three days, her and the young women with her. Uh, was she planning? Was she praying? Was she thinking? We, we don't precisely know. She was fasting, but I don't think that it was accidental what happened after that, right? That she came to the king with a feast already prepared because that was, that was her that was her first request, right? At the third day of her fast, when she came and stood in her royal robes just outside the palace, and the king, you know, extended the, his scepter, what is it? What can I do? Her first response is, come to a feast that I have prepared. Right? So there's planning. There's intentionality going on here. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> as we've talked about probably at more length than should have, even her conversation during that first feast and how she changed the, the terms of coming to the second feast, essentially uh, getting the king's agreement to, to do whatever it is that she was going to ask, sort of as a prerequisite to coming to the second feast. So this is, this is, uh, uh, this is not just accidental what's going on here. So... Well, let's get the rest of uh, chapter, well, not the rest of it, to, yeah, let's get the rest of chapter 7 in the from bad to worse to dead section for Haman. If you thought Haman was having a bad day so far, it, it will get much worse much uh, in, in a short amount of time. Verse 7, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. I'll just pause right there. And we'll, come, we'll, we'll, we'll get to what he saw. But um, Haman is left really with no options that, that are good. Um, right, the king is left in a rage, and Haman knows that harm. The king means harm, so he's he's not going to go out with the king, uh, and and he is violating court protocol by staying uh, with the queen alone. Um, it's a capital offense itself, just to be alone with uh, a member of the harem. 
Um, in fact, even if, if you were uh, in the same room, but, but amongst others, you were to be seven paces away from, from any member of the harem, which is, is not all bad, right? That's, that's not all bad. Um, and so, so Haman, and, and, and he couldn't just leave, right? That's, that's a pure admission of guilt, and he has no opportunity to have any negotiation whatsoever with the king. So he's, he's stuck. And so he has decided that the best thing he can do since, since his, really his, his death sentence has come from the lips of Esther, he's going to stay and beg for his life from her. Right? Um, falling before Esther. Right? This is, again, just, just it comes at such a pace to us, the reversals that are happening here. Right? That part of this all started because Mordecai wouldn't do what? Wouldn't bow down uh, in front of Haman. And here we have Haman falling down in front of Esther. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing to see uh, what's happening here. Um, okay, so now back to where we were. Uh, I'll get in verse 8 again. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Okay. Part of the question that we, we might want to ask is, is, why did the king leave in the first place? Now, he was, he was in a rage, but he left. Um, and we're not, we're not told explicitly but we can get some clues. He come okay, so the plot that Esther has unveiled and said, my people are to be destroyed and killed and annihilated, save my life, was signed by the king. Right? He understands that, that what, what she is asking to be spared from is his very own decree. Right? He knows that he, he's made a terrible mistake by allowing Haman to do all that, but, it, but official court records are that, that he is the one. Right? So he's out, and in, it, it could just be blind rage. Right? Sometimes this guy just needs to leave the room. Right? <laughs> um, but it could be that he is trying to understand, um, how, do, how do I do this? How do, how do I stop this and save face? It's possible. And lo and behold, it just so happens that when he walks back in, he sees precisely the perfect opportunity for a valid uh, charge against Haman. He is accosting the queen. Oh, that'll, that'll fly. That'll go. Yeah. Yeah, judge... Jury, executioner, right there it is, right? <clears throat> and that's, that's what we see um, when, when his face, when Haman's face is covered, that's a sign of a condemned prisoner. That's, that's what we see. Okay. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, 
is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And, and, and again, they just, they just, it just, this is in just a, in real time. It's just, just one thing right after another. These reversals, right? That are, that are just amazing to see, right? Um, yeah, so it just so happens there's, there's a gallows. You could see it, right? <laughs> it's like the Connell Baptist steeple, right? <laughs> I actually emailed the folks at Connell just to see if anyone knew how tall the steeple was, but nobody has a good answer for that. So, but, but it's the tallest thing in the area here. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so I, can, I can even imagine Harbona looking out one of the palace windows and saying, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's Haman's place right over there where that beam is sticking up you know, 60 feet taller than everything else. Yeah, that's the one. And, and the king, you know, swift justice on a new gallows uh, takes place. Um, MacArthur uh, actually points out that, that there were now three capital charges that could be held against Haman. One, that he had manipulated the king in the first place to kill the Jews. Uh, second, accosting uh, the queen. And, and third, uh, his specific plan to execute Mordecai. Um, so any, any of those would be reasons. Well, in a Persian kingdom, you know, if it's off with his head, it's off with his head. You, know, you don't necessarily need uh, specific charges, but, but he, the king here, actually has them, three of them. So, all right. Let's get into chapter 8. Verses 1 and 2, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, that is, her older cousin uh, who, who cared for her and, and raised her as his own. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Um, yeah, the very same day. Right, it's on the same day, uh, a, a uh, the estate of a traitor, a condemned prisoner, became the king's. The king could do with it whatever he wished, and so he gave it to Esther. Esther gave it to Mordecai. So we we now have. Remember all of those riches? You remember when, when uh, Mordecai went home after the first feast? And he was so happy, right? He was so happy. And, and he brought together his friends and his wife, and he was recounting all of his riches and his sons and his titles and his honors. Of course, he had that one problem that, you know, that it all meant nothing. Um, until Mordecai was gone, but but he is recounting all these things, all those things, uh, everything is now Mordecai's. So, it, it again, it just words escape me to even explain just 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 how magnificent the the turnaround is in all of this. Um, 
Another thing that we will see, just, just from a textual standpoint, starting right here in chapter 8, verse 1, is the word Jew or Jews or Jewish just is everywhere. It's in over half of the verses in the remainder of this book. Um, about three-fourths of the references to any of that word group start right here in chapter 8, in these last three chapters. And it's, it's really just um, symbolic of, of what has happened in Esther and Mordecai's lives, right? We see them starting out as undercover agents, as it were, blending in, and now uh, they are fully out and everyone knows and there's no shame, there's no, there's no hiding whatsoever uh, that the fact that they are Jews. Um, and we see them just, uh, for lack of a better term, just winning, right? Just one thing after another, reversals that are happening. Okay. Verses uh, 3 and following. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, <clears throat> Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, <coughs> if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So Haman's gone, but his plan remains. There's still a problem. It's, uh, it's eight and a half months left. And that day, that 13th day of Adar, is still coming. It's still circled on the calendar, right? And uh, we see Esther who comes now pleading in a way that she was not pleading before. She, she, was, she was coming and inviting to a feast, and, and, but she's begging now uh, and pleading for her people. She has full association with the Jews. There's, there's no secrets. There's, there's, there's nothing hidden about her passion for her people and, and she is just outright begging in front of the, the king. You'll see the um, four times in verse 5. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes. So four times she's just piling on um, courtesy. Two things about the situation and two things about herself. So even though she's pleading, she's still working for the king's favor, both about the situation and personally. Okay. Okay. In fact, she comes um, not only uh, with, with do something, but she comes with a concrete plan, right? Um, let an order be written to revoke these letters. 
Um, and then she, in verse 6, again, pulls on the king's heartstrings. How, how, I, how, I, can't, I, just, I couldn't stand it if my people uh, perished. I, I, I just I, I couldn't bear this. Please, please help. Let's go on to verses 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king first says, uh, don't forget what I've already done here. <laughs> right? Um, you have Haman's estate. Haman's dead. Um, so don't, don't, let's not forget that. But, tell you what, you go ahead, and, and actually he proposes what is both a solution and it uncovers the problem, right? Because he says, seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Well, that's the very thing that happened two and a half months prior uh, with the initial edict, that it was, it was written it was sealed with the king's ring, and there it can, therefore it cannot be revoked. But, uh, but he says, write what you please. Uh, in my name, sign my name. Uh, this is an amazing thing to see how God has moved in the heart of this wretched, wicked king. Who, who um, There's more that could be said about his lack of uh, concern for life. I won't go through it, but for those who like to go and dig elsewhere, I will give you a name that you can Google. The name is Pythias. P-Y-T-H-I-U-S. So if you go and you Google Ahasuerus and Pythias, P-Y-T-H-I-U-S, you can go and read just about the, the lack of regard for human life that this king has. And so it, what that will tell you here is how God has moved at this moment uh, in the heart of this king. Yeah. All right. We go on. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, to the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. <clears throat> okay, there are just many parallels uh, with this edict, uh, with the edict from chapter 3. Um, the, uh, the audience is the same, the scope to go out through all of the empire, um, the, that it was in everyone's language and script, um, that it was sent by, <clears throat> written by really the second in command of the king and signed by the king, sealed uh, with, with his signet ring, that uh, it was sent out swiftly by couriers. In fact, that is, that is re-emphasized in verse 14 for us, uh, isn't it? It's, it's set up above in verse 10, and then we're reminded again in verse 14 that it went out swiftly. So, to be clear on, on what this edict uh, is, uh, it is more than simple self-defense, right? Self-defense self is me staying alive when Roger attacks me, right? That's, that's, that's self-defense. But it is something less than just indiscriminate destruction, right? It, it, this is this is proportional. Right? This this and it, it sounds it sounds harsh to us, right? That uh, women and children be destroyed, annihilated, goods plundered, but it really is just a, an, an exact replica of the first edict, right? And it's and it is the proportional response to attack. And, and no doubt it is written specifically that way, not only for the instruction for the Jews, right? But it is, it is written that way so that uh, everyone amongst whom the Jews were living would see that. And they'd say, hmm, well, look, look at this edict from a couple months ago. Look at that one. Okay, I think I, I think maybe we'll just pass on both, <laughs> both of those. I'll just, Maybe we'll go to the lake that day. Just, just, yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. Let's get the rest of this chapter, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So we see responses again that are just um, absolute opposites from the first uh, edict. Remember what Mordecai did, right? 
sackcloth, ashes, mourning, lamenting, crying out, essentially wandering around Susa like a madman you know, in his grief. And, and now we see him for the second time coming through Susa in royal robes, this time additionally with a crown. Um, the people of Susa, their response to the first edict, the, the city was thrown into confusion, right? And now there's rejoicing. The Jews throughout Susa and the, the empire itself, before there was weeping, mourning, lamenting. Uh, here, a feast. Of course it's a feast. It's like the 15th feast of Esther's this book so far, right? A feast. And then there is this curious bit in the last verse, isn't it? That many from the peoples of the country, that is non-Jews, declared themselves uh, to be Jews, right? They're learning from Esther's shrewdness, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Uh, but, but their motive is given for us right here in the text. Uh, it, it's, it's not a love and a reverence or even a fear of Jehovah. Right, it, it's it's a fear of the Jews themselves. It's it's a response to the edict. It is it is a matter of self-preservation. Uh, we we don't hear anything more about um, this this response uh, uh, in in great detail here. But um, strikes me as um, a uh, false profession, right, of allegiance with God's people. Um, just, but uh, uh, we'll 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 see if there's more uh, next week as we go along here. But but it uh, the the motive is given. It, it's fear of the Jews has fallen on them. Okay. Question. Sure. Who are they? Yes. Yes, that's right. Right, so the, good, good, the question is, who are these in relation to Ezra and Nehemiah? So this, this took place uh, in between uh, those, those books. But, so these are, these are probably grandchildren of, of folks who had returned with Ezra. These, these are Jews who, who had been exiled, or at least their ancestors had been, but they've just lived their entire life within the Persian kingdom. Yeah. Not, well, not in Babylon itself, but in Susa. They're in, they're in Susa. But, but the same kingdom that was the, the, the Assyrian kingdom became the Babylonian kingdom. Now it's the, the Persian kingdom. Yes. Yeah. It's just being handed down to different folks along the way. Yeah. They probably know the stories, but but it's not talked about, right? Yeah, it's not talked about here. So yeah, these are sorry. Right, right. Yeah, we we know we know their genealogy uh, because, for instance, we know that that Mordecai, um, his great great granddaddy, I think it is, was one of them who had been exiled um, in I think the second group of exiles from from Nebuchadnezzar, so we know that there's a connection. But that also tells you just how long it's been uh, since yeah since the exile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good question. Yeah. 
Okay. So let's uh, wrap up um, this chunk. We've, we've seen this, this rapid pace continues uh, in these chapters. Um, we see God's providence, his deliverance, his rule through uh, Esther having risked her life and intervened on behalf of the Jews um, where they faced uh, an irrevocable death sentence. Yeah. Um, I have a table there as well of reversals. That, and just to explain what that is, um, on the left-hand side, we'll just take the first one for as example. We won't look at all of these. Is is sort of the, how the story was laid out at first. Chapter two relates Mordecai having discovered this plot, and then no no thanks or reward being given to him. And then we see that reversed in chapter six, where he is acknowledged. Okay, and then you can see that all the way down uh, through this. And 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 this is just this is not all of them. There's more. Um, and there's more to come as well, reversals that we will see in the last two chapters. Um, but that's how you can understand that uh, reversal roll call uh, in, that, in that table. Um, and we're left here at the end of this chapter still not sure exactly what's going to happen on the 13th of Adar. I mean, we're, we're still eight and a half months out and we still don't we know now there are two edicts that essentially say exactly, well, not exactly the opposite thing, but it, it's like setting up for a, for a fight, right? Yeah, this one says you all can attack them, and this one says you all can defend yourself and kill them the way that, that they wish to kill you, right? So we just we wait and see uh, what, what will happen. Um, but back to the, the point about the irrevocable death sentence, right? Um, we have that. We have that ourselves, don't we? Right? Um, just walk through this briefly with me. We won't turn to them. But Genesis 2.17, God told Adam and Eve that it, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? Uh, Romans 5 tells us that sin came through one man and through that also death. And the death spread to all, right? Uh, Ephesians 2.1 tells the whole world that they are dead in their sins, in their trespasses, right? Galatians 3.10 says, in addition... All are under a curse, right? There is this death sentence that is irrevocable. Right? In fact, Romans 8 even, even tells us that the entire uh, creation groans under this curse. That, that at some level, trees and windows and bricks and grass and cows groan under this curse. That's beyond my brain, but it's, you know, it's, that's all just part of creation groaning under this curse. And God simply will not wink at sin. Right? He, 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 will, he will not just say, well, you know, never mind. He, he, 
that cannot be revoked. Right? There, there needed to be another edict. Right? There, there needed to be another decree. And praise God there is. In each one of those sections that I just mentioned briefly, Genesis 3, we're told of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Romans 5, uh, just as through one man came death and sin, through one man comes life, right, for all. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 5, right, but God, right, but God made us alive together with him. In Galatians 3, that curse, right? Christ became a curse for us, right? And uh, rescued us, Romans 8, from the curse. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. To the point where we're told that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? Jesus came and did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Right? There is, there is a righteousness that we, we cannot earn. We don't have. Right? And God, in and of Himself and us, that, that can't be fixed. But Jesus comes in perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and fulfills the law as it were, almost a second edict that, that countermands that first edict on our behalf. A righteousness with which we are cloaked. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Yeah. I started us uh, in Daniel 7 praying. Uh, we're going to close there as well. Let's pray. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Father, we praise You that You have sent Your Son, that He rules with an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not be destroyed, that You have rescued a people who could not, uh, well, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And You have reached out with Your scepter. You have saved, and You are still saving for Your glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.